Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 Podcast. I'm Nate Aiken, your host. And on the Baptist 21 Podcast, we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. Uh, and we're going to start a series uh, looking at confessions. And so we have a lot, obviously, going on in the Southern Baptist Convention right now, thinking about uh, confessions. And so we want to talk more about that. And I have with me a return guest, uh, Eric Smith. Eric is the associate uh, is an associate professor of church history at Southern Seminary, also the pastor of Sharon Baptist in Savannah, Tennessee. Uh, Eric, thanks for jumping back on. It's an honor to be here, Nate. Thanks so much. And you've talked in the past. We've we've done podcasts about you know the first and second Southern Baptist Convention president. Today, we're going to talk about a really influential figure in Southern Baptist history, uh, that being E. Y. Mullins. We're going to talk about the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message, the 1925 Convention, uh, which was pivotal uh, in many ways. And so, you've done some study on that. You've taught actually a class recently at, at Beeson. Taught at least a day at Beeson about this topic. And so. Yeah, I mean, we're looking forward to, to jumping in. So let's just start with that. Can you just give us an overview of kind of biography and maybe even just uh, influence of E.Y. Mullins? Who is he? Uh, you know, what should the hearers know about him as we before we kind of jump into the specific topic of the 1925 Baptist Faith and Message? Absolutely. Mullins was born in 1860, right? The Civil War is getting started in Franklin County, Mississippi. He's the son of a Southern Baptist pastor and school teacher. They're going to relocate as a family to Corsicana, Texas in 1868. <laughs> and uh, Mullins will go on to become like a telegraph operator as a teenager and then enroll in the first class at Texas A&M University. He's an mm-hmm. Aggie. He gets some military training there. And when he graduates from A&M around 79, he wants to go into law. But first, he attends a revival meeting uh, with his dad in Dallas, Texas. Uh, the revivalist is W.E. Penn, and Mullins is converted. Uh, so mm. has his first um, public profession of faith in Christ. His dad's going to baptize him in November of 1880. That redirects his vocational path, and Mullins uh, commits to the ministry. So he goes to Southern Seminary, which is in Louisville, Kentucky. At this time, in 1881, he's going to study with a lot of the founding faculty members like Boyce and Broadus and Manley is back on the faculty at this point. Some others are are involved, um, but he will be a student at Southern from 81 to 85. He really wants to be a, a foreign missionary to Brazil. Got some health issues that aren't going to permit that. And so he uh, pastors kind of a small church in uh, Harrodsburg, Kentucky for a couple of years. But then ends up taking kind of an, an interesting departure. He spends about 15 years outside of the Southern Baptist context, um, mm-hmm. or outside of a, a strictly Southern context, at least. He pastors a church in Baltimore, Maryland, for a number of years. Um, he also serves a church uh, outside of Boston, Massachusetts, in Newton Center, uh, Massachusetts. And so a, a different kind of a world. And he's going to pick up, I think, some cultural polish uh, at, at this time and also pick up some new ideas. He, he sat at the feet of James P. Boyce at Southern and imbibed that kind of Princeton Calvinism that Boyce loves so dearly. And uh, Mullins is going to retain an appreciation for a lot of that. But he's also going to pick up a lot of new strands of thought when he's on this pilgrimage, um, things like um, personalism. Um, uh, he's going to uh, pick up on uh, a little bit of Protestant liberalism, you could call it, and an appreciation for Friedrich Schleiermacher, um, some different philosophical uh, streams. Uh, anyway, just kind of some new stuff uh, for a, a new generation of Southern Baptists. And um, I think E.Y. Mullins is going to become convinced that <clears throat> Baptists they don't need a full-on embrace of what's going to come to be known as, as modernism or, or Protestant liberalism. But there does need to be a bit of an, an update and a restatement of Baptist belief for a new day. This is a rapidly changing day in the 1890s, turn of the of the 20th century. And uh, there's a need for a restatement of Baptist belief. He's going to use that phrase a ton in his writings in the decades to come. And so uh, when E.Y. Mullins is elected as president of Southern in 1899, he returns back 
to his mother's seminary as the fourth president in the midst of a great controversy. Uh, E.Y. Mullins is going to, A, kind of right the ship at the, at the seminary, bring a lot of stability during a tumultuous time after the William H. Whitsitt controversy, if you know about that. Um, regain a lot of denominational trust for the seminary through his leadership and his writings. He's also going to introduce kind of some new ideas into the, the theological curriculum at Southern. We can talk a little bit more about that if you want to. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, and maybe we'll save that for the end as we kind of uh, assess sure. him, because um, there there's probably two or three questions I want to ask in that. Uh, but, but maybe in that vein, before we sort of start to get to 1925, was there concern about his embrace of some of those things when he's hired in 1899 at Southern? Is that not really on people's radar or is it not fully formed even in him? And so is there concern at, at, at some of that shift in 1899? Yeah, he's probably still formulating some of those things in 1899. He's seen as a, a sophisticated, forward-thinking uh, sort of a theologian, but very safe for Southern Baptists. One reason why he was such an attractive candidate for the presidency as I, I mentioned, there was a great controversy that rocked the entire denomination and just right. about sunk Southern Seminary in the final years of the 1890s um, over President William H. Whitsitt. There was a, this uh, belief that he'd betrayed denominational trust by publishing articles on the sly, uh, sort of questioning the historicity of, of immersion and, and baptism. And uh, so E.Y. Mullins was one of the few kind of prominent Southern Baptist preachers who had kind of stayed removed from that controversy. Just about everybody had taken a side in the SBC, whether on the the Witsit side or on the the other side, the the down with Witsit side. Um, he Mullins actually had taken a side. He 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 was supportive of uh, freedom of research and some of those things, uh, and was very concerned about uh, landmarkism in the SBC. He even published an article about that. But there was just so much. Um, so much being printed about that in those days that it kind of got lost uh, mm-hmm. under the big avalanche of, of articles, and nobody really remembered that. Um, but, but Mullins had been away from the controversy, not been in the middle of it, and so he was seen as a safe uh, candidate who could kind of bring all sides together. And that really was a defining mission for E.Y. Mullins's life, uh, certainly his life as a Southern Baptist leader, uh, to be someone who was irenic and who could bring uh, all sides together in an increasingly diverse and uh, divided uh, SBC. With the um, Witsit controversy, he was a member of Walnut Street, right? Do you remember? Yeah, he's eventually going to go to, that's where he meets his wife, in fact, Isla May, um, but he's eventually going to go to Broadway Baptist Church in Louisville. Okay. okay. Um, all right. So then let's, so, so obviously he's, he's the, the, President of the seminary, Southern Seminary, uh, in 1899. So 26 years later um, is when we kind of find ourselves in 1925. Maybe just ask it like this first. Why is he, it seems somewhat obvious, but maybe talk a little bit more. Why is he the main man at the center of uh, both? I mean, obviously, this is going to be even the cooperative programs being developed this time. Certainly the 1925 confession. Why is he center stage and all that? And so Mullins, after he arrives at the seminary, uh, emerges as kind of the key Southern Baptist theologian of his generation, certainly. I think he becomes the defining Southern Baptist theologian of the 20th century in a lot of ways. Uh, but he, he writes a lot. He, he writes several important books, kind of apologetic sorts of works. Um, he, he publishes his own systematic theology that's going to replace uh, James P. Boyce's systematic theology at Southern Seminary and, and in Southern Baptist life for training ministers for a couple of decades to come. Lots and lots of articles, uh, some popular works about what it means uh, to be a Baptist, like the axioms mm-hmm. of the Christian religion. And so he becomes this really trusted voice uh, for uh, interpreting the Baptist faith in a new day. He's uh, someone, as I said earlier, who's able to be kind of a mediating figure in the the growing SBC, because Mullins places such an emphasis on religious experience as being the center of the Christian faith, the kind of the integrating center of, of Christian theology. Mullins will make statements that really frustrate his in, interpreters uh, later on, but he'll say things like, I'm either I'm neither a conservative nor a progressive, or I am both a conservative and a progressive. He, he wants mm-hmm. to steer a middle course 
um, often in, in whatever the conversation is, whether it's uh, fundamentalism and modernism, or it's Calvinism and Arminianism. He wants to bring all kinds of Southern Baptists together. And the way he's able to do that is uh, by stressing the centrality of, uh, of religious experience, the shared experience of the new birth and a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, that's something that allows him to move in, in really broad circles in the SBC and outside of the SBC. He's got cozy relationships with the very modernistic faculty at the University of uh, Chicago Divinity School. But he's also invited to write an article for the Fundamentals of the Faith, uh, which he, he writes on Christian experience. Um, so uh, Mullins is, is a figure who's able uh, to occupy uh, broad circles of, uh, of theological conversation. And he's, he's someone that uh, Southern Baptists come uh, to, to trust and admire. Uh, by the time you get to the early 1920s, He's elected as the SBC president from 1921 While being president, uh, through 1923. Sorry. That's correct. Yes, sir. Yep. Um, yep. So he's uh, SBC president, 21, 22, uh, 23. Um, and, and it's right at a time. Uh, it's, a, it's a very momentous time for Southern Baptists for, for at least two reasons. Uh, one, this is an era of aggressive expansion for the Southern Baptist Convention. It, it has been kind of this loose coalition of churches over the decades as they've tried to crawl out of post-Civil War poverty and all of that. And now on the other side of World War I, um, the, the, the South is growing. It's becoming a little bit more prosperous. And there is uh, this need that, is, that emerges uh, after the war for Southern Baptists to shun the ecumenical movement, to not water down their distinct beliefs and convictions, and instead do Southern Baptist work on a larger scale. It's going to require them to, to band together to raise more money collectively. And so they, they undertake this huge campaign called the 75 Million Campaign. 1920 Mullins is all for that. Um, and, and they're going to need to uh, increase their institutions. You see a proliferation of Southern Baptist institutions in the late 19-teens. Uh, other seminaries pop up, the annuity board, the executive committee, all these kinds of things are happening right now. The Southern Baptist Convention is becoming larger, more centralized, more visible, um, and, and they're trying to move forward. Um, Ewan Mullins uh, really wants to lead the way in that. But the other reason why this is a momentous time, right on the eve of the uh, Baptist Faith and Message, is that it's a time of national controversy over the issue of evolution. And uh, we, we probably want to talk about that for a minute, too. So so at this point, he is, is he would be considered the main statesman of the SBC? Is there anybody else that pastor wise or even denominationally that would be at least somewhat viewed as a statesman alongside of him? But I mean, is he the main guy? Yes. In the late 19 teens, a guy named J.B. Gambrell has been a part of the SBC for a long time. He's been a newspaper editor, among, among other things. And he's the one who first kind of sounds the trumpet. After World War One, for Southern Baptists to do a, to do a bigger work, a grander work, a more unified work, um, but he's he's going to die. He's an old man at that point, and uh, he's going to die around 1920. Rise of the 75 Million campaign is is getting started. Uh, the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, L. R. Scarborough, is a very important, very aggressive Southern Baptist leader. He's going to spearhead the 75 Million campaign. He's actually going to be on the Baptist Faith and Message Committee with Mullins. Um, George W. Truitt is a great Texas Baptist pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas. Um, he is a great proponent for this denominational growth in SBC life. Then you could have some, maybe some dissident voices, uh, like the, the great J. Frank Norris of uh, First Baptist Church, yeah. <laughs> Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, he's going to have some concerns, uh, about, uh, Mullins and, uh, and SBC life and the 75 million campaign. And, and some of those things. So, yeah, lots of very colorful characters at this time in convention life. I haven't read it yet, but O.S. Hawkins wrote a book about uh, Truett and uh, and Norris, uh, who are both obviously one in Dallas, one in Fort Worth at the same time. I'm, I want to I want to check it out. Have you read that? I think that's a great book. Yeah, I really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Yeah, I had to check that out. OK, so give me the energy. We have the statesman. We kind of have the main figures at play. Give me the background to to kind of heading into the nineteen twenty, and I guess it would have been the nineteen twenty four convention, where they're tasked with putting together the Baptist Faith and Message. But give the background to those years as we're sort of heading into for, the formation of the nineteen twenty five Baptist Faith and Message. 
Yeah, I mean, it may surprise some listeners to know that the SBC, founded in 1845, by 1925 does not have a confession of faith that the denomination has adopted. And maybe a, a few reasons for that. Uh, one is there are many Southern Baptists who are just averse to confessions of faith uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one is the influence of the New England separate Baptist tradition. They kind of suffered under the coercive enforcement of creeds and confessions by the the state church, the congregational church, and uh, that had prohibited them from following their conscience and what they thought was the simple teaching of the Bible. And so they uh, just developed a, a real, a deep suspicion of confessions. Even uh, those separate Baptists would, would use confessions at, at local church levels and association levels. And, and then Campbellism, the kind of the Disciples of Christ movement in the early 19th century in the South, uh, that's also a very anti-confession of faith, um, uh, kind of an impulse, and a lot of Southern Baptists pick up on that. So there are Southern Baptists who just, they want to stay away from confessions. Um, but but also, the SBC had not adopted a confession because most local churches and associations had confessions. And so uh, Southern Baptists were typically uh, bound to some kind of confessional body before they ever got to the SBC. And so it was seen as superfluous. Things not necessary. They had confessions they felt good about. You know, they they may have used the Charleston Confession or the New Hampshire or the Abstract or Principles or something. And so it was seen as not really necessary to adopt something new. But that's changing now on the eve of 1925 uh, for one reason because of this great this great um, advance in SBC life. So there's a need to kind of define what this convention of churches is all about. That's collecting all this money and building these institutions and carrying out this this worldwide work. Also, because of this, this great controversy, um, the fundamentalist modernist controversy, it's, it's rending denominations in the North. This is the time when you know, Jay Greston Machen is fighting his battles in the Northern Presbyterian Church at a Princeton seminary. And uh, those, those famous fights, Northern Baptists are having their own struggles. It's the era of uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? All that stuff is going down. The, the famous Scopes Monkey trial is going to happen in 1925 in Dayton, Tennessee. Actually, E.Y. Mullins is going to be asked to be a consultant by both sides wow. <laughs> in the Scopes Monkey trial. So that's, again, kind of points to what a mediating figure he is. He declines to get involved. Um, but the, the, the Southern Baptists, because they're in the South, they're a little bit culturally insulated while all this is going on. But as reports start to pop up in the early 1920s of Southern Baptists, uh, college professors uh, teaching evolution in the classroom, you've got these voices like J. Frank Norris's and others who are sounding off. Uh, we've, we've got a problem in this convention. We need to remove evolution root and branch. We need a statement of uh, Southern Baptist belief. And if you just think about it from the perspective of a denominational leader like Mullins, at the very moment that, the, that uh, this leadership is trying to gain denominational trust and collect these funds for their efforts um, and, and trust is being eroded uh, because of all these reports about evolution. And so there, there's, we see this need for a Southern Baptist uh, statement of faith in the early 1920s. There are several different conversations about that. Um, and Mullins actually doesn't love the idea of adopting uh, a Southern Baptist confession of faith. Um, my colleague at Southern, uh, Greg Wills, says that the story of the BFM 25 is much stranger than history has remembered. I think he's exactly right. One of the reasons why it's strange is that the, the leader of the committee doesn't particularly want it. Uh, now, now Mullins doesn't particularly want it in part because he's this very um, individualist Baptist. I mean, he, he's the great proponent of what comes to be known as a soul competency. Uh, he says that's kind of a distinctive mark of Baptists. They're the 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 truest exponents of uh, the principle of soul competency that every individual is competent to relate to God uh, on his own or on her own. They don't have to go through a pope, a priest, a bishop, even a, a pastor. They don't they don't need anything between them and the Lord. And and uh, Mullins wants to protect that kind of individualistic uh, spiritual instinct in Baptists. He also just thinks that it's a, it's a really dicey time to be adopting a confession of faith. If you come out with this super strong uh, evolutionary statement, anti-evolution statement, you're going to cut people out of the denomination that he wants to keep in. 
Um, you're going to cut out some of the best scholars in Southern Baptist life for one thing, and he wants to mm-hmm. guard against that. Um, on the other hand, if you don't say anything at all, um, you're going to uh, alienate this uh, more strongly, staunchly conservative faction like the J. Frank Norris's and others. And so he would prefer to just avoid this altogether. But when he sees that he can't, Mullins would prefer to take a leadership of the Baptist faith and message mm. than hand it over to someone else who would make an extreme statement. And that's something that Mullins, uh, Mullins will say that uh, uh, openly. Uh, he would rather take leadership of it and steer <clears throat> what we would see as more of a middle course that's still broadly conservative, but more inclusive of all Southern Baptists than handed over to what, what they might consider like an extreme fundamentalist position that's going to narrow um, convention life. Yeah, so, so you mentioned um, no confession. I know that uh, Timothy George, who I hope to interview in this same series, uh, he has a book called Baptist Confessions, uh, Covenants and Catechisms. He talks about how every delegate to the original Southern Baptist Convention had uh, came from church, uh, came from associations that had adopted either the Philadelphia or what was called in the South, the Charleston Confession. Um, so fast forward, obviously, though, it's not adopted at the national level You've given reasons why there would be at least some concern um, kind of going along the way uh, from 1845 to 1925. Can you just give us I want to get into that and into the particulars of the um, what it was supposed to mean for the life of the convention, other than just maybe a statement about against sort of evolution and and, and, uh, more of a statement of biblical creation and so forth. What's though the particulars coming around, like just even just. Hey, how did the vote come about? Like, how did the, the, this get proposed from the floor? If you can give us any just kind of specifics about the kind of the, the mechanism of what put the committee in place. You don't have to tell us everybody who's on the committee, but if you know a few that are on the committee, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, of course. So uh, Southern Baptists had made some statements of their faith and uh, even kind of creed suspicious folks in the convention would be okay with a, a statement of their faith just to let the world know what Baptists believe to distinguish them from other groups or to show that they weren't a part of some heretical sect or something like that. And they had done that in the 19-teens. In fact, in the late 19-teens, they had published a statement of faith that Northern Baptists were supposed to also agree to. It's kind of like a kind of a unifying sort of a deal. Like we we mm. You know, we're Northern Baptists, we're Southern Baptists, but we believe the same kinds of things. And the Northern Baptists kind of got cold feet on that because they were having their own confessional battles and, and really deep, deeply uh, deep theological disagreements uh, at that time. Um, so, but, so Southern Baptists had been making these kinds of statements, um, but it's it's really in the context of this this evolutionary uh, debate uh, in the early 1920s that you see this call. Uh, for Baptists to state uh, uh, to state their faith, to state their confession, um, so that everyone knew uh, what um, those who taught in in colleges and seminaries and so forth what what they believed, and to restore uh, some denominational trust there uh, in the late 1920s. And so this committee uh, actually is appointed not to create a confession first of all, but just to report back if it's appropriate for the convention to have. A confession, and when Mullins presents the actual BFM, he'll he'll say that in the preamble. Mm-hmm. Um, but while they were at it, they thought, let's just go ahead and put a confession together that we all feel good about, um, and put it in front of, of the convention. And so there were, uh, I think there were seven members of that committee, and I've got their names. Was it appointed? By, do, you know, do you know if it was appointed by the president of the convention? Was it appointed by the floor? Do you know how that those dynamics were? If you don't, no, no big deal. I was just curious if you know how the dynamics played out. You know, I actually don't know. That's a really great question. Uh, who appointed those members? I I don't know that Mullins handpicked them, although it ends up being a very Mullins friendly. Like he's, and he's the president of the convention. Yeah, he's the president of the convention. So <clears throat> he's yeah. he's not the president in 1924 when this okay. uh, committee is put together. Uh, but he's just coming off of three years of being the president, obviously the most influential Southern Baptist that there is uh, alive at this time. Um, Ewell Mullins is the chairman of the committee. Uh, there are a number of former Southern Seminary faculty members on this, like E.C. Dargan and um, W. McLaughlin, now at, then at uh, Furman University, used to teach at, at Southern. 
Um, so L.R. Scarborough at uh, Southwestern mm-hmm. Seminary, so a very denominational friendly uh, kind of a leader, someone who's wanting to bring unity and kind of let's move this along through this controversy kind of an, uh, uh, an outlook. There's only one member on the committee that would be could be classified as, as a fundamentalist or an ultra conservative, someone who's really worked up about evolution. That's C.P. Steely. Um, he C.P. Steely is the editor of uh, the Oklahoma Baptist uh, State newspaper. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's very sympathetic to like a J. Frank Norris, and he he tells Mullins he wants a bomb-proof statement uh, against evolution. And so Mullins is going to have to work carefully uh, around that brother, and they're going to end up having some fireworks on the other side uh, of the confession mm. being adopted by the convention. But most of the people on the committee say we we want a statement that's going to unify Southern Baptists at a at a divided time, and the best way that we can do that. Well, let me just read the quote from from Mullins. Our committee was convinced that the greatest service it could render to the convention was to submit a moderate restatement of Baptist beliefs, along with an introduction which would protect that statement from any false inference as to the assumption of ecclesiastical authority. So a couple of key ideas there. One is we want this to be a moderate restatement of Baptist beliefs. So up front, they're telling the convention, we want to avoid extremes. Uh, we want the, And we want it to restate what Baptists have always believed. They're going to work from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. That was first written in 1833. Kind of a, you see some softening of Calvinism in the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. But it's a, a very conservative and, and very popular a confession among Baptists, but may, maybe not quite as strict as, say, the Charleston Confession, the Second London mm. Confession, something like that. So they thought, we'll use that as our template. We're going to have a restatement of the New Hampshire Confession, and we are going to uh, though preface it with this introduction that will protect it from what he calls a false inference as to the assumption of ecclesiastical authority. We don't want Southern Baptists to think that we're going to use this in a, some heavy-handed kind of a way that we're going to use this uh, this confession to bind the conscience, uh, to restrict you know the freedom of individual interpretation of the Bible, to tell some about what they've got to believe. That's not what this is. This is going to be more descriptive of what most Southern Baptists believe versus prescriptive what all Southern Baptists have to believe. And they they took great great pains. Uh, to say that over and over again. And one reason for that is there were lots of Southern Baptists who were worked up that uh, that there was any kind of confession that was that was coming out of the convention. One of them was a faculty member at Southern Seminary, W.O. Carver, a fascinating uh, character, maybe for another day. Um, but he, he even wrote, so he's, he's like E.Y. Mullins' employee, but he's writing newspaper articles against mm. his boss, uh, calling Southern Baptists to reject this movement telling you Mullins that he was trying to Presbyterianize uh, Southern Baptists and, uh, and tell them what to believe and uh, just changing the whole Baptist ethos. So the, Mullins and the others in the committee, they're, they're aware of that kind of uh, pushback. And so they start the BFM 25 with a really important preface uh, that shows just how careful they're trying to be to not make this a creed, if you want to put it that way. That's the way that other Southern Baptists would talk in, in later years. Um, it's simply a statement of the beliefs of most Southern Baptists, particularly those who were there in Memphis, Tennessee in 1925, who confirmed it. Mm. Yeah, it seems to it seems like the same fights they were having then we're having now, which is which is interesting. Um, OK, so they choose any any more background. Just You don't have to 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 dig any deeper here, but just the New Hampshire confession seemed to be a very uh, it, it kind of fit that moderate language that they were trying to use. So that's, that felt at least to some degree with the, the, the template that they were going to use. Did they make some adjustments to the New Hampshire? They did. And, and you can read uh, some side-by-side comparisons that are available online. You'll see where they changed the language here and there. They, they also added some articles uh, to the New Hampshire confession that were not there before. Maybe interested in that. Um, uh, so what, one of the things obviously that was driving uh, the Baptist faith, the message is this issue of of evolution. And so there are lots of Southern Baptists who are really, really, really wanting a strong, bomb-proof 
anti-evolution statement. Um, they don't quite get that, <laughs> but under the, mm. the article about man, uh, instead of uh, this anti-evolution statement, uh, they say instead, got it pulled up right here. Um, well, first of all, in the introduction, M Mullins and the committee address the evolution issue. The present occasion for a reaffirmation of Christian fundamentals is the prevalence of naturalism in the modern mm. teaching and preaching of religion. Christianity is supernatural in its origin and history. We repudiate every theory of religion which denies the supernatural element in our faith. So real strong um, pro-supernatural uh, statement. Uh, they, they acknowledge the backdrop of these uh, science controversies uh, and all of this. But then when you get down to the doctrine of man, instead of this utter repudiation of evolution, name and names, they settle for the broad statement that man was created by a special act of God as recorded in Genesis. Man was created by a special act of God as recorded in Genesis. Now, a lot of Southern Baptists are not happy with that. Uh, one of them is the committee member, C.P. Steely, that guy that I mentioned earlier. In fact, he stands up, gives a minority report, calls on Southern Baptists to amend this and to strengthen the statement. He's going to go on to say, in fact, he gets into a Florida debate with E.Y. Mullins. And Mullins is going to say, look, when you when you say that man's created by a special act of God, that totally rules out, you know, uh, naturalism and scientific evolution and all this kind of thing. It's good enough. We need to leave it as it is. Uh, we don't need to get just so nitpicky. They're going to get into like a newspaper uh, uh, debates on the other side of, of it. They're, they're going to come really close to calling each other liars. Uh, wow. saying that Mullins had agreed to make a stronger statement to the committee. And then when he gets in front of the convention, uh, he mm. ends up laying out this, this real broad statement. So lots of heartburn over that issue. But the convention ultimately adopts what Mullins says. Um, they're they're good with it. They they think it speaks sufficiently to the issue, um, and they just kind of want to move forward from that. Of course, there are some who 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 still aren't happy with it. Uh, but that's that's one issue that they had to speak to. That obviously the New Hampshire Confession wasn't concerned with in 1833. Um, you also see them adding some articles that speak to the changes in Southern Baptist life at this time. For instance, there are articles on stewardship and cooperation. It's a really long, detailed article, uh, number 22, on cooperation. It's going to talk about um, uh, all, uh, kind of this New Testament principle of local churches working together to carry out the Great Commission. It goes into to great detail to talk about how, how good this is, how biblical this is. Of course, it makes sense that leaders like mm -hmm. Mullins and L.R. Scarborough would want to elevate cooperation to, to – uh, Confession level, confession of faith type level, um, because it's going to be so critical for them to carry out uh, this bigger Southern Baptist work uh, that they're moving toward at this time. In 1925, mm -hmm. it's the same convention where they adopt the cooperative program. Um, so a big, long article on cooperation uh, signals uh, some of that context. Well, yeah. What a pivotal convention. Um, any any more like maybe you don't have anything like this, but did. Did J. Frank Norris speak at uh, during debate? Was there any other little things as far as debate uh, from the floor that that you know hearers may feel, find interesting, or certainly just the two committee members going at each other? And how was it? Was it adopted on a pretty significant uh, percentage? Yeah, by a vast majority, the convention uh, adopted the committee's recommendation and adopted the Baptist faith and message. They just they went with E. Y. Mullins. He's the trusted, visible mm -hmm. leader. Um, they're they're looking for unity at this point. The people who are there at the at the convention are, but yeah, in future months and actually in the next couple of years, uh, Mullins is going to be kind of hounded by J. Frank Norris and and others uh, who are more of his camp about this anti-evolution stuff. Uh, uh, you know, accusing him of uh, trying to you know give a safe harbor uh, to those who are bringing uh, corrupt teaching into Southern Baptist schools and all that. Of course, by the into the 1920s, uh, J. Frank Norris is already working towards breaking away from the Southern Baptist Convention because of uh, doctrinal compromise and, and some of those mm -hmm. things. All right. So I, you've kind of talked around this, but I'll just ask it specifically because I think it's it's obviously important. Um, how then was the confession supposed to like what was its 
purpose? Was it supposed to govern in any way the the work of the convention? Um, I may even ask the question like this, and maybe I'll ask follow up to it. But certainly at this point, they don't just want any church to be able to send messengers, and they don't want to just send anybody to be a missionary through our mission boards. Um, but what exactly is the confession supposed to do for the life of Southern of Southern Baptist? Yeah, that's such a good question, and it, the answer is they're really not sure. <laughs> There's so much ambivalence about the purpose of this confession. If Can I read a little bit of that preliminary yep. statement that the committee uh, uh, attached to the Baptist Faith and Message? Because they saw this as every bit as important as the articles that would follow. Um, they they mm. wanted to state what Baptists believed about confessions, how they're supposed to function, in Baptist life. So there are, are five of these statements that they make. I'll read at least some of them. Um, uh, number one, a Baptist, these confessions constitute a consensus of opinion of some Baptist body, large or small, for the general introduction and guidance of our own people and others concerning those articles of the Christian faith, which are most thoroughly conditions of salvation revealed in the New Testament, repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ as Savior's Lord. So some key words. This is a consensus of opinion, right? They they say it provides general instruction and guidance for our people. So that's kind of softer language than we might expect uh, from a, a confession of faith. Number two, we do not regard these as complete statements of our faith, having any quality of finality or infallibility. As in the past, so in the future, Baptists should hold themselves free to revise their statements of faith, as may seem to them wise and expedient at any time. So this, we don't think this is the final word. We expect it to be revised in the future. Number three, any group of Baptists, large or small, has the inherent right to draw up for themselves and publish to the world a confession of their faith whenever they may think it advisable uh, to do so. That language of rights is, it gets used a lot. Mm -hmm. Number four, the sole authority of faith and practice among Baptists is the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. Confessions are only guides in interpretation no authority over the conscience. Number five, that there are statements of religious convictions. These are statements of religious convictions drawn from the scriptures and are not to be used to hamper freedom of thought or investigation in other realms of life. So it's kind of an ambivalent uh, sort of a posture to confessions of faith. They see that there's a need for it, and yet they want to apologize for it a, a number of different ways because there's such attention in Baptist life on the role of confessions at this time, and they know that. So some uh, Southern Baptists are going to want the convention to enforce the Baptist faith and message to require it of, say, you know, denominational employees. That that term can't quite be applied in the same way in 1925 as it's going to be able to, to be applied later on as the convention gets so much more developed. But um, some people are, are going to want to require this. Uh, in Baptist schools of, of their employees. And uh, I think Mullins and the committee kind of want to get away from that. They they don't want to be quite so prescriptive. Um, uh, but at the next year's uh, convention, the president at that time, um, George McDaniel, is going to make a, a strong uh, anti-evolutionary kind of a statement in the, his convention sermon. And uh, there's going to be a motion by the convention to require Southern Baptist professors and teachers to kind of to sign on to that statement, to agree to that statement. Um, so there, there is uh, kind of this groundswell of wanting that. And then there are, there's also kind of this counter movement that wants to stay away from it. And, and basically it's a case by case basis as far as how does it, how does it function? Um, some institutions uh, do require uh, their, their employees to agree to the Baptist faith and message. Sometimes they do in kind of a loose way. They'll, They'll like ask questions like, uh, have you read the Baptist faith and message recently? And do you disagree with it in any part? So, something as, as simple as that. Um, l later on, as time goes by, there's going to be actual like signing your name uh, to the confession uh, kind of a thing. But it, it remains really loose in Southern Baptist mm -hmm. life for decades to come, even at the time of the, the 1963 restatement of the Baptist faith and message. Um, that there's still not this. Um, kind of top-down expectation that that everyone, uh, even affiliated with a, a Southern Baptist entity, 
is going to have to sign on to the confession. D- different seminaries and entities are going to handle it uh, differently over the years. And of course, as we get closer to um, the conservative resurgence in those events, there's going to be a, a tightening of those expectations. But it remains really loose in SBC life, mm-hmm. really, for the whole 20th century. You know, it's interesting because I, I've had Finn on before to talk, Nathan Finn, who's also a Baptist historian, to talk about how in the past, when it comes to messengers in particular, uh, and just in friendly cooperation with the convention, many people who would maybe be out of step with the common held beliefs would just kind of sort of, I think the language he used was self-select themselves out of um, of being, you know, obviously involved in friendly cooperation with the convention, which would mean, at least to, to my knowledge, sending messengers to the convention. Is the, is the BFNM seen in a similar way? Are there people who, once they this is adopted, they sort of self-select themselves out of cooperation with the Southern Baptist Convention? Do you, do you have, do you have knowledge of that? Yeah, there's certainly people who are unhappy that Southern Baptists did this, but I'm not sure that in the late 1920s, there are people who are willing to hold up their hand and say, you know, I, I I can't in good conscience agree with the Baptist faith message 25. And so I'm just, but I still want to be a Southern Baptist. So I'm just going to kind of back out of uh, operating in the SBC. I, I don't think you see, as much of that, there are people who protest that they did it at all, just because it's kind of uh, an, an un, just on un, principle. Mm-hmm. But it's an unbaptistic kind of thing. They continue to to protest it. Um, they didn't know about the first London, the second London, and the Philadelphia. They didn't know about those confessions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, so just, the situation is just not as developed at this point right. in the denomination as it's going to be later in the century. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and that's helpful. I want to talk then. Uh, I mean, there's so much more you could dive into there. And, and obviously, we're dealing with this even up to this day about how the confession acts. Would you say, based on what you just said, would you say that? So, by and large, there were not going to be many Southern Baptists who did not agree with the 1925 BFNM. I think that's right. And like one of the the knocks against it is that that statement about man being created by a special act of, of God as recorded in Genesis, that leaves room for theistic evolution, which of course it right. does. Um, yeah, that's, that's going to allow um, pretty much everybody in the SBC, even the, even the folks uh, that the Norses of the world were so worried about, it's going to allow them to, to remain uh, in friendly cooperation, if you would put that's it that right. way. Let's talk about then just briefly. Uh, I don't want to keep you all day, but because I could talk about this stuff all day. But the lasting legacy of EY Mullins. I mean, again, we this does set the stage, and I'm going to have other guys talk about 1963 and 2000. But this sets the stage for those. But we've talked about it at the beginning. You know, Mullins would say, as opposed to somebody like a John Hammett, who would say the Baptist distinctive is regenerate church membership, and obviously others would believe the main thing we're about is believers' baptism by immersion. He would say the Baptist distinctive is soul competency um, and even just a, a version of also an emphasis on priesthood of the believer. Um, you've hit on this again. Talk, talk to us about how that maybe overemphasis uh, or mis- misplaced emphasis on that led to some of the, f- the future problems. Uh, and just talk about uh, the, the lasting legacy of E.Y. Mullins, uh, if you would. Yes, yeah, so Mullins himself remains. Yeah, a relatively conservative theologian. He still defends uh, the, the supernaturalism, the the fundamentals of the faith. He's writing apologetic type works as late as 1924 called Christianity at the Crossroads, uh, where he's pushing back against the more extreme versions of modernism. He does, however, change the starting point for Christian theology uh, from uh, the revelation of God in the scriptures to our experience. Now, Mullins himself winds up in the right place a lot of the time, maybe not all of the time, but in in the main issues, he he still winds up in an okay place. But by changing the starting point and placing so much emphasis on our experience and also so much emphasis on soul competency, the right to the private interpretation of the scriptures, he sets the stage for later generations to take those principles and divorce them from the rest of what the New Testament teaches um, about the, the life of the local church and uh, any number of other things. And so the experience and freedom 
become the two watchwords, really, uh, the two guiding principles uh, for Southern Baptists moving forward. And, and what that means is Southern Baptists are going to be held together post-Mullins, not by a common confession, really, not by a common theology. They're going to be held together by common cooperation, by a common commitment to do missions together. They're going to be held together by the cooperative program. They're broadly conservative, or they wouldn't, or they couldn't be a part of the Baptist Faith and Message 25, um, but they're broadly conservative, and yet uh, there's it's broad enough that there's room for a lot of diversity uh, at, at the fringes. But what they're all committed to is they can come together every year around a shared experience of being by Jesus and wanting to win others to Jesus uh, and uh, and contributing to that cooperative program. And it, it creates what um, historian Bill Leonard has called the Grand Compromise. Uh, another historian, uh, Andrew C. Smith, calls it the Scarborough Synthesis, referring to L.R. Scarborough. Um, Southern Baptists are united not by confession, but by the shared mission. And that's good enough for the next several decades. Um, and it allows Southern Baptists to grow explosively after World War II. They passed United Methodist as the largest Protestant denomination in the uh, mid-1950s. Uh, and everybody's celebrating and high-fiving that. But by the early 1960s, you begin to see that those fringes that we were talking about, they've become a bit more fringy than anybody realized. <laughs> and you've got the, uh, the, the Oops uh, publication of the message of Genesis by Ralph Elliott, where he accidentally reveals, you know, that he, uh, you know, affirms the JEDP hypothesis and uh, affirms his higher biblical criticism. And, and uh, uh, grassroots Southern Baptists are, are shocked by that. And, and, and so there, there's this concern that there's too much diversity in, in Southern Baptist life. And so they call for another statement of Baptist belief. Uh, and, and so in 1963, um, Herschel Hobbs, who's kind of the spiritual son of E.Y. Mullins, he also wants to steer that broadly conservative consensus uh, among Southern Baptists, he he leads the charge with this 1963 Baptist Faith and Message, which again uh, sort of staves off controversy and schism through a very broad, moderate statement of Baptist beliefs. He brokers a compromise, and, uh, and the SBC is, uh, is able to move forward with that uh, for several more decades until by the conservative resurgence um, there are enough leaders who say we've got too many compromises and there's too much diversity. And I, I know y'all talk about it in future episodes. Um, but what Mullen said after the 1925 BFM is it was an open defeat of the radicals and extremists who want to put the thumb screws on everybody who does not agree in every detail with their statements of doctrine. Um, he saw it as a, a compromise document. He saw it as uh, a, a mediating document that was going to allow Southern Baptists to work together, even as their their beliefs on what he would see as secondary matters beginning to diverge. I, I think that's his great uh, legacy in the SBC, you know, for good or for bad. Some would call him a statesman, others would call him a compromiser, but he's able to hold this this large diversifying SBC together uh, to stay on mission for, for decades to come. And it's still, I mean, again, when you, when you look at it, you're just kind of talking to it through a historical lens. Um, but when you look at it through a historical lens, it still raises the big question of what, how should the confession uh, really act among us? And so I think, you know, it's, it's, we're still, because there was such ambiguity and ambivalence, we're still dealing with that question a hundred years later, which is, which is fascinating. It's a, it's a, it's a, a, a lesson in history, I, I guess you will. Give us just kind of, so it's basically three years after this, E.Y. Mullins passes away. Um, just kind of maybe wrap up the end of his life. We talked a little bit about his legacy. We'll have you back on again, talk more SBC presidents and things like that. Always enjoy talking about it, but kind of wrap up E.Y. Mullins for us. Yeah, Mullins continues to be that great statesman in SBC life, but also on the World Baptist stage. He becomes the president of the World Baptist or the Baptist World Alliance and takes some world tours, uh, does some work for religious freedom freedom in Romania and other places. So he, he really has uh, a bigger platform than any Southern Baptist has ever had, basically. He's, he's kind of the most famous Baptist in the world at the time of his death in 1928. He also uh, moves a Southern Seminary to its current home at the beaches. He moves them from downtown 
to this new property. Um, it's a beautiful place, of course, if you've ever been there. Uh, he ends up getting the seminary right a whole there. lot of debt, right? <laughs> as a, Yeah, you know all about it. That's right. Yeah. Of course, he ends up getting the seminary in a whole lot of debt right before the stock market crashes. And uh, good old John R. Sampy, his uh, successor, has to dig him out through the Great Depression. Um, but he does get a Southern Seminary to their new home. And uh, yeah, he dies in 1928, uh, the preeminent Baptist statesman and Baptist theologian of his generation. He casts a long, long shadow um, when you get into the conservative resurgence. Uh, in the 1980s, Mullins is coming up all the time. Uh, the legacy of Mullins is still in play in this vision of uh, what does it mean to be a Baptist and what does it mean to cooperate in the Southern Baptist Convention? It's fascinating. I went on uh, when the SBC was in Louisville, so 2009, I went to Walnut Street because uh, they were going to have um, a former professor from Southern who had been dismissed uh, speaking to the Sunday school. And I just thought it'd be fascinating to hear what she has to say. Um, and it was, uh, it was fascinating because she used experience to defend being a female pastor, which was fascinating. Um, she said, she, I still have never forgotten the quote. She, she said, I wrestled with the apostle Paul until he blessed me. But the reason I share that is because Walnut Street. And yeah, what a quote I know. It's like, yeah, well, the Bible <laughs> may say one thing, but as long as I wrestle with Paul enough, uh, it'll say what I want it to say, which again, gets into some of the issues we've talked about already, but the reason I brought it up is because uh, they had a stained glass window of E.Y. Mullins uh, in the in the church uh, sanctuary, which was, um, again, you have people on all sides who, who lay claim to E.Y. Mullins. Um, That's but yeah, fa- fascinating stuff. Eric, thanks again for kind of weighing in. Uh, but a lot of questions that still to kind of explore as it pertains to how the confessions have been used, how they've been viewed, how they should be viewed today. Uh, but thanks for giving us a little bit of history into the 1925 and to the first one among Southern Baptists. Well, you're so kind to include me, Nathan. Y'all have got nowhere to go but up from here. <laughs> well, we want to go forward from 1925 to 1963. I guess it's unfair to say that Southern had their own confession, which we'll, we'll also probably dive into as well. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for taking time to be on. It's always so much fun. Thank you, Nate. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.